Welcome back to Gary's Talk. We finally get to talk about real football. I'm your co-host, Brett. As always, I'm joined by my friend, fellow ND sports junkie, and co-host of Gary's Talk. Mike, I know this podcast is focused on analytics, so we shouldn't be superstitious, but I am a little stitious, and it sure feels great that the Irish are undefeated in the era of the Gary's Talk podcast. Love that office reference. Always a fan. That's right, Brett. We'll, uh, we'll break down the entirety of the FSU opener, but step one is complete for the Irish campaign. As a reminder, you can find us on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you listen to all your favorite podcasts. I say this every week, but we love hearing from our listeners. Please rate us, tweet us, tell us whatever feedback is on your mind. Before we dive into the FSU game, a bit of housekeeping for our listeners. We're actually recording the show in pieces, as Brett and I have had quite a whirlwind of a week. Brett, how's your recovery from our Sacramento trip? I know I was certainly grateful to be working from home on Monday. Yeah, I took the red eye back to Atlanta. Definitely was in rough shape, uh, frankly, through Tuesday this week. And uh, I'm now in beautiful North Carolina recording this from from my in-laws. Uh, got to enjoy the opener with my father-in-law, official father-in-law of the Guyers Talk podcast, Tom, fellow Notre Dame alumni, class of 76, and a huge proponent of RTDB football. And uh, Mike, how was your opening weekend? Yeah, you're right. So I was actually at a wedding during the game and had to watch the replay early Monday, Monday morning. Um, I don't think I need to comment further on fall football weekends, as I'm sure our listeners share our sentiments. I am, however, now in Minnesota looking at uh, wedding venues for my own wedding. So as we said, episode four was a full-on Ian Book scramble drill, but thank goodness for virtual recording tech. We'll highlight which segments are being uh, taped beforehand, essentially everything but the Florida State recap. And we're really excited about the content we've got loaded up for the show. Yeah, obviously, Florida State game, top of mind. We'll, we'll spend a good chunk of time w- walking through the game, all the key plays, and, and really the analytics behind it that drove the outcome. Uh, we'll get to that recap after our mailbag section. We'll also do a fairly quick preview on the Toledo Rockets and then close out this week by doing our inaugural State of the Program assessment, where we'll take a holistic view of the Brian Kelly era and how he grades out under the Irish Talk grading scale. Ready to dive in? Let's do it. Okay, so Brett, kicking off our mailbag, here is our first question. What's an area where the 2020 team had glaring struggles that you're optimistic about this year? Yeah, red zone offense, I think, is definitely, you know, as as we talked about this question this week, especially in the passing game, and pretty interesting as we were talking about this to research for the show, Brian Kelly brought this up on his Florida State preview. And then Tim Prister at Irish Illustrator uh, had a really great article on this. The Irish were 14th in the country last year in touchdowns. So seems like overall they did a pretty good job getting in the end zone. But honestly, it could have been a lot better. Um, on 60 red zone passing opportunities, the Irish only had 10 touchdowns. Uh, 60 red zone trips only converted to 35 touchdowns so that they had a 57% touchdown conversion rate in the, in, in the end zone. That was 84th in the country. Reason for optimism this year, I think largely centers around Jack Cohen's arm strength compared to Ian Books. Uh, also year two for Tommy Reese, year two for Michael Mayer. Uh, we mentioned this in the roster preview. Mayer only had two touchdowns last year. And then Kevin Austin. Uh, you know, last year we had Ben Skoranek. He was a big guy but not really the strongest, so struggled in the red zone. Avery Davis, shifty, but not a big guy, so also only had two touchdowns last year. Joe Wilkins, Javon McKinley, neither guy was really a go-win one-on-one matchups like we've had with Chase Claypool or Mike Floyd or Justin Marja. So Michael Mayer in year two, Kevin Austin, he's 6'2", 215, big body. Hopefully those guys, combined with Jack Cohen's arm strength, is going to be a difference to watch for throughout this season uh, in our red zone offense, getting a little more balance b- between both rushing the ball into the end zone, but but also getting there through the air. For our second listener question, this one comes from Chris Gila. Mike, being from Memphis, I know you appreciate a good defender like the Grizzlies guard Tony Allen, a.k.a. the grindfather. Who do you guys expect to be the grindfather for this Irish team? I uh, love any question that's going to reference uh, the grindfather, Tony Allen, or really any of the grit and grind uh, era Grizzlies. Tony Allen, his role within the team was he was really an emotional leader. He was a lockdown defender, did a lot of the dirty work, fan favorite, just someone that you could rely on, someone that the fans loved. So I think if I'm looking at comps within the Irish defense, I don't think there is a perfect comp, but the person who immediately comes to mind is someone like Kurt Heinisch. He is also an emotional leader of the team. 
maximum effort, does a ton of dirty, non-glamorous work, and a top defender on the team. Is he going to be a top draft pick? Probably not, but he's a critical component of the team. Um, he's also back for his fifth year. He's been with the program for a long time. Uh, I think it also helps that he's from a place like Pittsburgh that kind of has that, that blue-collar blue collar ethic. Um, again, not a perfect comparison. Tony Allen was first, uh, he was first team all defense. I don't know that we're going to be saying that about Heinisch this year. I don't think he's going to be an All-American, but I think he's going to be a really good player. And I think he fits a lot of these emotional characteristics that Tony Allen became known for. Okay, Brett, uh, here's a good one. Over under receptions for Kyle Hamilton this year as an offensive player. Uh, and this person put 0.5. All right, 0.5 receptions for Kyle Hamilton. I have no idea if he's ever going to play receiver this year, but just because it's Kyle Hamilton, you've got to hammer it. You've got to hammer the over. Some way, sometime, they're going to get him on the offensive side of the ball. I, I don't know. This is probably a dumb bet, but I'm going to hammer the over. Okay, so that wraps up our questions for this week. Moving on, we get to talk about some actual football. We're going to go to our recap of the Florida State game. Florida State 38, Notre Dame 41 in overtime. Wow. I am physically and emotionally exhausted. Uh, I'm not sure I'm even ready to talk about this game yet, but here we are. Uh, and not even sure where to start. There's just so much to unpack in this game, but a place we're going to start most games is with the advanced box score from College Football Data. Always a great place to ground yourself in what the game was and, and, and how it unfolded. Uh, first stat to focus on is post-game win expectancy. Florida State had a 55% post-game win expectancy, which means if we played this game 100 times, the Irish would lose 55 times. Uh, not surprising, Pretty much a toss-up. It's 41-38, close ball game, goes to overtime. And it's also not surprising Florida State had the edge in, in the advanced stats given that this was a close ball game despite countless miscues by Florida State. Nine penalties, three turnovers. I think I counted three botched snaps. Norvell almost inexplicably went for it on fourth down from his own 30-yard line. So they really gave Notre Dame a lot more opportunities than maybe were results that you'd expect to happen. Um What's really surprising was how dominant the Irish looked for most of this game. And then, as we'll get into, the script completely flipped in the fourth quarter and wound up with a nail-biter down to the end. If you follow us on Twitter, we were tracking success rates and Havoc plays. We won't do that necessarily for every game, but but definitely check us out on Twitter. It really helps to see how the game uh, develops. And as Brett mentioned, this one had quite the narrative. I know when I was watching this game, it was very stressful. I My gut reaction was like, uh-oh, looks like Notre Dame chose chaos this year. Uh, after watching it with a little more time having elapsed and watching it more unemotionally, I feel a little bit better about it. But either way, again, a lot of stress in this one. Uh, the Irish offense came out early through a haymaker on in the opening drive. After that, the success rate, though, was about 35% for the first half. And the explosiveness rating was about 1.3. Yeah, and to put those two stats into context, a success rate above 50% for an entire season would put you top 10 in the country. Low 40s is about average. Last year, Notre Dame was 46%. So we had a 46% success rate in this game. If you exclude the first drive, we had a 35% success rate in the first half. So relatively stagnant offense. And when you're stagnant, the only way to score points from your offense is to generate big plays. We didn't do that. And the result after the first drive was punt, punt, downs, punt, field goal, touchdown on a short field following an interception, punt. Uh, So, you know, really... Most of the first half, the offense didn't really move the football. And then after halftime, they came out and the offense exploded. 71% success rate in the third quarter. Jack Cohn lit it up. Kevin Austin and Brady Lindsay looked like the reincarnation of Chase Claypool and Miles Boykin. And then 87 just kept doing his thing. Mike Mayer, they kept calling him Baby Gronk. I think we need to flip that script and start calling Gronk Big Mike. Uh, but what really stood out to us was what the Notre Dame offense was doing on what's considered quote-unquote standard downs. Uh, standard downs is when the offense is on schedule. So first and 10, second and five, third and short. When you're on schedule, the defense is on their heels a bit, and really the whole playbook's wide open. On those plays, we had an 80% success rate in the third quarter. Incredible job by Tommy Reese coming out in the second half, made great halftime adjustments, and, and really blew this game open and, and should have put the game away. Flipping to the other side of the ball, Florida State basically had four offensive plays in three quarters of football. Unfortunately, that included an 89-yard touchdown, 
two 20-yard plays to set up a score in a short field, and a 60-yard touchdown pass. For three quarters, Freeman and the defense were stifling. They looked pretty much how I was expecting them to look. Havoc rate was above 20%. And for context, compared to last year, Andy was number five in the country with a havoc rate of 22%. So for big stretches of this game, other than giving up those big plays, the defense was showing some real flashes of dominance and what most people around the program were expecting uh, coming into this game. Yeah, and then, you know, we're not going to spend too much time on it, but the refs clearly botched a roughing the punter call. That might have, you know, quite literally ended the game. But already before that, the script really flipped in the fourth quarter. Notre Dame's success rate went from um, 71% in the third quarter to 14% in the fourth quarter. Florida State's success rate, uh, as Mike talked about, um, was really low in the 20s and jumped up to 48% in the fourth quarter. Uh, the explosiveness, the big plays that Florida State was generating in the first three quarters weren't there, but Mackenzie Milton came in uh, and and kept moving the football. What's interesting is I think Mackenzie Milton gets a lot of hype for what he did for Florida State's offense. He only averaged seven yards per attempt, which was actually the exact same as Jordan Travis. Now, Jordan Travis turned it over three times, but they weren't doing it with explosive plays with Mackenzie Milton. They were just methodically moving the ball. Uh, their 18-point score in the fourth quarter came on three drives that covered 36 plays. Definitely. I think with Milton with those drives... It makes sense. It was a big story, great story. Um, it's just great to see Milton out on the field. But they were very stressful emotional drives, um, very important drives. So I think they're getting a little more attention than they would have if, if say, that these had happened in the first half. Um, regardless, moving on, definitely a tale of two cities starting in the fourth quarter. We all know how it ends. Norville freezes his own kicker with a challenge. The kicker then misses from inside 40 yards. The door hand, hammers home the, the game winner. So let's give him a huge shout-out. We talked in our show last week about his struggles in 2020. Two huge kicks in this game, none bigger than the 41-yarder in OT. It's just great to see someone who performed at such a high level in the past, lost his confidence a little bit last year, seemingly regain his uh, his, his former um, consistency and confidence. For sure. Re- really pumped for the Charlotte kid out of South Mecklenburg High. Um, as an aside on that Norvell challenge in overtime, the refs completely botched it. Um, I do think it was an incomplete pass, so I think they got that part right. However, once that was an incomplete pass, uh, the quarterback was inside the pocket. The ball wasn't deflected by a defender. So if you're in the pocket and the ball only goes one yard and doesn't get back to the line of scrimmage, that's an intentional grounding spot foul. So I understood why they changed it to an incompletion. I didn't understand why a flag then wasn't instituted for a rough, uh, for an intentional grounding that would have put the ball at the same exact spot. So that one really puzzled me. But either way, ball don't lie. Kicker misses the field goal. We come back the other side. Our kicker nails one, and, and the Irish pull it out in a nail-biter. Um, so let's start ticking through some of our notes. You, you want to start on the offensive side of the ball? Let's do it. Jack Cohn, Jack Cohn, Jack Cohn. He put up more yards than Tom Reese ever did in a game. Now, we double-clicked on this. The advanced box score actually wasn't as kind as you'd expect. He had an average points per play added of a .4, which is pretty much right on top of Ian Book's season-long average last year. Yeah, and just to spell out, uh, we, we brought it up a couple episodes ago, but points per play is essentially how many points you would expect to generate in a given play per advanced stat. So if you make some ridiculously amazing 60-yard pass, the expected points per play on that is going to be six points. If you make an absolutely horrendous throw, the expected points per play on that is zero. So Cone averaging 0.4 points per play, um, right in line with Ian Book, and that really surprised us. If you just look at the deep ball, it looked great. He underthrew a couple, but you know, great strikes to Mayer, Wilkins, Austin, Lindsey, a great red zone read to Kyron in the flat. So you know, optically, the he passed the eye test. I think when you double click on the numbers, though, he picked up 55 yards on a screen to Kyron Williams, which in the advanced stats doesn't count as much. And he completed the 41-yard touchdown pass to Michael Mayer on really a busted coverage where I think Mike or I might have even been able to complete that pass to Mayer. So if you take out especially a couple of those big explosive plays where it wasn't necessarily Cone the quarterback, it was just either a busted coverage or a great play call by Reese, I think that's what really brought back some of his uh, some of his stats in this one. Yeah, I think those are really important caveats to point out. Um, we mentioned it earlier, but the offense was also really flat for big stretches of the first half, and then again went stagnant 
very memorably and stressfully in the fourth quarter. Cone averaged 0.4 expected points per play for the entire game. That was 0.2 in the first half, which was really about zero after the first drive. It was actually negative 0.1 in the fourth quarter. In the third quarter, it was more of a Joe Burrow-esque 1.7. So Heisman can at third quarter, pretty average the rest of the game. Yeah, really great point just to keep highlighting how different the third quarter was for our offense relative to the other three quarters. You know, I think a lot of Irish fans are waking up on Monday ready to anoint Jack Cohn as the next Brady Quinn. The advanced metrics are telling us let's wait a little bit and, and let's see how that plays out. Looking at the rest of the offense, Mike Mayer, exceptional. He did have two crucial drops, one on a third down early, the other obviously at the end of regulation that might have avoided OT altogether if he hauls in the catch. Uh, we actually received a listener question on Mayer's performance. If he keeps putting up 100 yards a game and a touchdown every game, but he keeps having drops, can he win the Mackey Award? Mackey Award for the best tight end in the country. My view on that is let's just hope he cleans up the drops and we don't have to worry about this question. Yeah. The other thing I'd say is Will Fuller had a major case of the drops. He actually still has a major issue with dropping the football in the NFL and was still second team All-America. So if Mayer keeps putting up these numbers, people are going to remember the touchdowns and not the drops, but de- definitely need to get this cleaned up. Um, we already mentioned it. Austin and Lindsay looked absolutely incredible. We we flagged wide receivers a big question mark in our season preview. Asked and answered. I stand corrected. Uh, why were they fun to watch? Maybe the only red flag out of the wide receiver room, Captain Avery Davis wasn't targeted in this game. Really, I'm not even sure what his snap count was, but... This was all about Austin and Lindsay, and it's going to be hard to take those guys off the field. I, I will say, if we rewind the tape on our shows, I did uh, point out the receivers as a, a position group that I was cautiously optimistic on. Point so. one for Mike, point zero for <laughs> Brett. Yeah, so we'll see. It's one game, but I think it's a good place to start. Uh, so moving to uh, another part of the offense, to the run game. Pretty quiet night. We received a good listener question. Was the run game struggle? Was that more a product of Kyron and Tyree or an inexperienced line? I was, I was frankly shocked by the stat line. Kyron only rushed for 2.3 yards per carry. It felt like he was doing a lot more than that. But then, uh, once you take a step back and look at like when he was actually like traditionally running the ball as opposed to some more unique wrinkles in our offense, it actually, it actually, uh, makes sense. But, yeah, and he also had a great night receiving to 86 yeah. yards receiving. So I think there you saw him really involved in the passing game, but in the run game, just not much there. Yeah, no, it was a great. I think it was a really good all like all purpose game, like all around. But in terms of just like pure like running the ball, uh, yeah, 2.3 yards per carry, not great. But uh, moving to the line, I think the line is really they're still trying to gel. They just didn't get penetration. I th- we've mentioned this a little bit before, I think, or we'll, we'll get into it more in the future, but the zone blocking schemes take a lot of coordination, and I think that showed. Pro Football Focus hasn't posted the grades yet for the game as we're recording this. Looks like maybe a delay. It is the Labor Day holiday, but if I had to guess, I think we're probably going to grade out somewhere in the 70s on pass protection. That's about top 25. And then in terms of run block- blocking, perhaps somewhere in the low 60s, which is middle of the pack. So I think takeaway, okay. They can improve more, and they need to improve if we want to uh, hit our uh, expectations for the season. Yeah, d- definitely felt like Tyree and Kyron were were more the victims of an offensive line trying to piece things together than than it was an ineffective outing from from the running back room. T- turning to the defense, we already mentioned havoc, really high rate, especially in the first three quarters, highlighted by maybe the greatest play by Notre Dame safety ever. Sorry, Tom Zabikowski. But Kyle Hamilton's second interception of the game, where he came from the opposite hash mark to make an absolute ridiculous toe drag interception. It had been a catch in the NFL, two feet and a knee inbounds. I mean, he covered 40 yards on that play. We had a funny listener question from a buddy of mine, Danny, who who said that the earth is covered by two-thirds water and one-third land, but how much is covered by Kyle Hamilton? Uh, (laughs) All of it. I mean, he just covered so much ground to make that play. And then um, just a ridiculous catch on the sideline. Incredible defensive effort. Uh, really, really put the team in a great position. But unfortunately, a lot of this was offset by big plays from Florida State in the first three quarters. On a long touchdown run, Adam Alola crashed too hard, missed his run fit. Cam Hart had really bad technique and run support and got turned around. And then Kyle Hamilton just took an awful angle from safety. On that long touchdown throw, 
Houston Griffith just got burned on a go route of the slot. Might be redundant, but big plays were the theme that kept Florida State in this. The other note I had on the defense was on the fourth quarter scheme. Watching this live, my, my immediate reaction was that the defense looked gassed, and we were starting to see the impact of injuries to Leofau, Botello, and then Moalo, who was spotted in a boot halfway through the game. So looked like we just had a thin linebacking group and, and we're maybe getting gassed. As we went back and rewatched this one more closely in the fourth quarter, I, I reached a different conclusion. Kelly even said post game that he and Freeman put in a different scheme when Milton came in. They were running what they called a double zone coverage. Even before Milton came in, they switched from a four two five to a three three five. It looked like a lot of times in the fourth they were actually running a three two six. So yeah. really, that meant that we were placing a defensive lineman with uh, another cornerback or another safety. And the goal of that scheme is to take away big plays. So we were getting burned by big plays in the first three quarters, and we said we're just not going to do that, and we're going to make Florida State put together long, methodical drives. With an 18-point lead, frankly, that makes a lot of sense to me. It just absolutely didn't work out. We did slow them down. We mentioned this earlier. It took them 36 plays across three drives. They had to take up 14 minutes of the clock. Not exactly the recipe that Florida State probably thought they were going to need to come back from down 18 points. We took away the big plays, and we made them beat us five yards at a time. Hats off to Norvell. Hats off to Mackenzie Milton, who made a lot of great plays to extend drives. That's exactly what they did. Then on the last drive in regulation, when they made the field goal and again in overtime, you saw Freeman switch back to the 4-2-5, where we put the fourth lineman back on the on the field. And so I think Freeman made an in-game adjustment to stop big plays. He made an in-game adjustment when they switched quarterbacks from Travis to Milton. He maybe stuck with that one drive too long, but he readjusted. We hung on for the win. Overall, though, that switch to the scheme in the fourth quarter really opened this game back up for Florida State to get back in it. Yep. And, Brett, I think you make a good point. I think when you're up 18 points, logically that makes sense to – play a little bit more conservatively we did I think we did switch to that three-man front uh I want to say like at the end of the third quarter and to me that felt like a little that felt like a little early maybe a little too conservative too early kind of the cardinal sin of big leads but at the end of the day it does I can't fault the logic behind it um and then I guess like moving on to uh kind of another observation on the defense during this uh during this stretch late in the game there were a lot of tweets out there about our players looking gassed and, and mistackling. Um, I'm not so sure that that was the case. And a lot of these run plays bouncing the outside, those are designed zone reads by Norvell's scheme to keep uh, keep stringing it to the edge until a hole opens up. Don't forget, Chip Long's run schemes are still present in Tom Reese's offense. And Chip Long was Mike Norvell's offensive coordinator at Memphis. So we're used to seeing those same runs bounce to the outside for the Irish. And Florida State had a lot of success with that but more because our scheme only had three D linemen on the field without that fourth guy to contain the edge. And Brett, as you alluded to uh, just a moment ago, once we switched back to that four-man front, it seemed like our defense settled in a little bit better, and it looked kind of more how, a lot more uh, similarly to how we looked earlier in the game. Agreed, especially on tackling. I think we saw a lot of those runs where we maybe made first contact at the line of scrimmage, but it was contact by a defensive player on our team, say Kurt Heinisch, who is still engaged with the blocker trying to make a really tough arm tackle when he wasn't really in position to make the tackle. I'm not ready to write off our tackling yet. I think we can certainly improve on it, but to me this one was more about the scheme rather than the player's execution. It seemed like we were almost strategically willing to give up four or five-yard runs, and it just didn't work. And Freeman needs to own that. Freeman needs to be better and get these guys back in better position to succeed. But I think there should be a lot of optimism that what we saw in the fourth quarter is correctable. For sure. Look, we won the game. Freeman clearly has a lot of work to do with the defensive unit. Need to shore up the big plays without jeopardizing our game plan. This easily could have cost us the W. At the end of the day, 38 points against Florida State's not going to cut it. Agreed. Quick update on injuries. We mentioned Paul Moalo. He's having an MRI. Seems serious. Uh, so... Botello, he should be back. That was quote-unquote COVID protocol. But now Moalo and Leofau out at the linebacking group, so starting to be a thin position, an area where we thought depth was the biggest strength. The other big injury news in the night was Blake Fisher. Carmody replaced him at left tackle, really struggled. Florida State started generating a lot more pressure once Fisher went down. Kelly told reporters after the game Fisher's injury wasn't an ACL or MCL. It was more of a strain. 
So wait and see on Fisher, but hopefully doesn't seem too serious. One uh, one update on Moala. So this is uh, breaking as of uh, Monday afternoon. Apparently he did tear his Achilles. So apparently, and mm. Kelly commented Ouch. that it was a very emotional scene in the locker room. Um, just a hardworking guy, great locker room guy, really embodies what, what Notre Dame wants in their players. So feel really bad for, for Paul. Um, yeah, local kid out of Mitchell Walker too. So that's, that's really tough. Yeah. So hopefully, hopefully he has a quick recovery. Um, and can get back on the field. I guess injury like this, usually it's at least like a year recovery. So hopefully he's good to go for next year, full recovery. So moving on, stepping back for what this means for the rest of the season, we had one more listener question uh, come in about the game specifically. Who needs to take the biggest step from game one to game two? I'm going to tweak that and say who needs to take the biggest step in improvement before Wisconsin. I think Toledo and Purdue coming up, both winnable games, and we really need to treat these next two weeks as getting ready for what we referred to in our season preview as the gauntlet of five straight games against really top 25 teams now, especially the way Virginia Tech looked. My answer to that question starts with Coach Freeman. We talked a lot about the scheme. I think that has to shore up. Uh, I think the offensive line gelling, Mike, you talked about that in the run game. Uh, you know, we don't know their grades yet, but it really seems like there was a stagnant rushing attack. Now, the reason why I'm hopeful for that is if you go back to 2018, Quentin Nelson and Mike McGlinchey go in the first round of the NFL draft. Game one the following year against Michigan, Wimbush was our leading rusher, but he had just 59 yards. Then in game two, we played against a really bad Ball State team. Jafar Armstrong was the leading rusher with only 66 yards. A lot of hype at that time, a lot of criticism around campus of can the offensive line put it together? We had you know Jeff Quinn come in as the new defense uh, offensive line coach, and there were all these questions of will the offensive line gel? Well, they did. Dexter Williams came back from a suspension and rushed for nearly a thousand yards, only playing ten games that season. So, if you just flip back a few years, we've seen this before, where you replace a lot of the offensive line in Nilsson and McGlenchy, and that gives me a lot of optimism for this squad. That a few games into this season, you'll really see him start putting it together. Completely agree. Think of the online gels. You'll see the running running game bounce back. Um, and that'll open it up even more for Cone in the pass attack. On defense, more questions than answers. Freeman and this unit are going to need to improve a lot. Yes, they generate a lot of disruptive plays in this game, but the in-game adjustments for Milton just didn't work, and they didn't put the game away in the fourth quarter with an 18-point lead. It'll take a few games for us to see how that settles out from scheme to players executing, and we might not really know until the Wisconsin game. I agree. I, I wrote down one other note right after the game. This isn't a top five team in the FEI or SP+. Uh, FEI and SP+, hasn't come out their rankings yet, so don't really know how they graded out there. This team can still definitely get to 10 wins. We might even be able to run the table. That's not out of the question. Our ESPN win projection actually stayed pretty much exactly the same at 9.2 wins despite winning this game. I think a lot of that has to do with Wisconsin and UNC looking a lot more beatable but we also look more beatable. And what I saw on that field tonight wasn't a top five team in those advanced metrics. I think this team is a step behind where we were last year, if not a few steps behind. There's opportunities for improvements, but question marks on defense, question marks in the run game. This just doesn't look and feel like this is the year for a top five Notre Dame squad. Maybe we get there in results, but in terms of the advanced metrics and efficiency ratings, I just don't see it. All right, so we've now closed out talking about week one. We're going to turn our attention to week two and dive into the Toledo Rockets. Uh, no, not the Toledo Mudhens, which, by the way, is a great sports franchise in, in minor league baseball. But this one will be focused on the Toledo Rockets coming to town to South Bend for Notre Dame's home opener in week two. No opponent should be overlooked um, by the team, but, you know, that's an unwritten sports rule that doesn't apply to podcasters. So we're going to keep this preview fairly quick this week, and that way we're going to get to spend more time talking about our state of the program segment that we're very excited about. Um, but Mike, uh, what's your high-level overview going into week two here? Yeah, I, I'm with you on it. I don't think that we should ever be overlooking any opponent, but ESPN has this as the second easiest game on the schedule, 90% chance for the Irish to win. I'm seeing early betting lines at 20-point favorites. SP Plus had Toledo ranked as the 76th team in the country last year. FEI was a little more favorable at 48. 
So, fairly balanced team. FBI ranked them as the 30, uh, 39th offensive team and number 57 defensive team. In week one, they blew out Norfolk State. But FC, an FCS team, so not a whole lot to learn from that opening game. Yeah, so let's start with their offense. A perfect example of why we need not just kind of the regular yards, touchdowns, points, stats, but really need to add color to that um, with some of the advanced metrics. This team was 13th in the nation in yards per game and points scored. So at face value, they put up big numbers, nearly 500 yards of offense, 35 points per game. We mentioned FEI ratings in some of our earlier shows. They had them as the 39th best offensive team. Uh, so clearly a big gap between 13th and some of the high-level stats and 39th uh, in the advanced metrics. They're expected points per play, which doesn't really factor in strength of schedule and strength of competition was 25th in the country, which was actually 10 spots better than Notre Dame and a success rate of 40, uh, 34th in the country. So, you know, some of the more at-phase value metrics, this is a high-octane offense. They put up a lot of yards. They put up a lot of points. But when you adjust for level of competition, not quite the same uh, caliber. Yeah, I think level of competition is the key caveat there. Uh, moving on, uh, last year the Rockets were led by QB Eli Peters. Big surprising news out of their summer camp, Peters retired from football due to multiple injuries and subsequent complications. So it looks like redshirt sophomore Carter Bradley is now starting under center, and he gets back all five starters on the offensive line. They're leading running back Brian Kobach and his two receivers, Isaiah Winstead and Bryce Mitchell. We use the word explosive a lot on the show. Their offense put up some big plays last year, averaged nearly six plays, 20-plus yards per game. That's good for number 24 in the country. I mentioned Winstead and Mitchell. They averaged 17 yards per catch. 19 yards per catch, uh, respectively. Yeah, look, this this offense is going to be really good in the MAC this year. Uh, recurring theme that we're going to talk about a lot this this year is taking advantage of extra eligibility from the COVID rules. This is a perfect example that they're bringing back a lot of their offense. They're taking advantage of fifth and sixth year super seniors. But I'll just go back to FEI where they're number 39th in uh, offense in the country. SP Plus was even lower than that. Had them in the 50s range. So, you know, how are they top 25 in all of these metrics and, and why do the, you know, advanced metrics disagree from the box scores? It's the level of competition. You know, they, they play in the MAC. that's often considered the worst group of five conference. Uh, and they only played six games last year. So the sample size is just smaller uh, and they haven't really played against tough competition outside of the MAC. So the FEI and SP plus rankings are just harsher on the Rockets. Um you know, some of the flashy stats are for sure there. I just really think that when you stack it up against ND's talent level, uh, this offense is going to have a hard time moving the ball against uh, Coach Freeman and, and the Irish defense. Yeah, and on defense, I wonder how many times we're going to be saying the following sentence this year. All 11 starters back on defense. Seems like a very common reframe this season. Before the season, that would be very rare to say about any team. But literally no one graduated last year. Everyone gets to come back if they want and if their program is okay with it. So especially for group of five schools like Toledo, they're all back. And it was a pretty solid unit. Second best defensive unit in the MAC. Generally pretty good at limiting the big plays. Number 30 in the country for defensive explosiveness allowed. Points per play, also right in that top 35. And the same thing for the offense. Just not much love from FEI and SP+. FEI had them actually as the number 57 team uh, defensively. Yeah, and they run a 4-2-5 scheme. So that's four down linemen two linebackers, and then five in the secondary. So undersized there, they basically live in a nickel formation, which means they have an extra cornerback on the field at any given time rather than an extra linebacker. So on virtually every single play, they're playing 50 to 75 pounds lighter, not to mention uh, across their defensive line, they're, they're a bit undersized. Um, but as, as you look at their key players, Deontay Johnson, leading linebacker, he's likely going to be all Mac this year. Defensive tackle, Deshaun Johnson, he led the team with eight sacks last year, so big havoc rate guy from the middle. Uh, but interesting note on the defensive tackle, Johnson, uh, he only weighs 255 pounds. So as you just think about the physical mismatch there, he's going to be going up against Jarrett Patterson, who weighs 307 pounds. Uh, just really reinforces this theme of big talent gap and and not, not really sure that Toledo is going to be able to stack up, um, you know, pound for pound, player for player. Yep. Hammering home that point you just made on the talent mismatch. Their last four recruiting classes have ranged from number 67 to number 74. Congrats uh, congrats to Coach uh, Jason Candle for that consistency. That's impressive in and of itself. 
when we're talking about Notre Dame, we were knocking Ian Book for being the number 517 recruitments class. Toledo doesn't even have a single player in the roster ranked in the top 600. So Ian Book, he gets ragged on by Brett, and he, but he would be once a once-in-a-decade talent for Toledo. Yeah, and just to be clear, I love Ian Book. I love Tommy Reese. I was big proponents of them, but I, I think it's always just, you know, context provides perspective on what their ceiling was. Uh, there's just a real ceiling for what this Toledo team can be. And, and to put that into perspective, another metric that we talk about a lot, 247 has a composite team talent rating. That looks at basically the recruiting ranking of your entire roster, not just one class. So it combines four years of recruiting plus any carryover from fifth and sixth year seniors hanging around the program, less anyone that leaves early for the draft, and then the net impact of transfers in and out. Toledo's roster is the 86th most talented under this ranking for 247. That's out of 127 FBS teams. For context, Notre Dame is number 12. So you're talking about the number 86th most talented team in the country versus the number 12 most talented team in the country. It's just a huge disparity for for Toledo to to overcome. So, Mike, with that, what's your score prediction for the game? What do you got here? Okay, so early betting lines are 19 and a half points. Frankly, I hate just betting on early games. Uh, the Miami of Ohio game from a couple years ago, that comes to mind. We're coming off of a tough road environment, Florida State, an emotional game. Regardless, I do think the talent discrepancy, as we have mentioned before, wins out. I think the defense stifles here. So I'm going with a score prediction of 38-10. What are you, what are you thinking, Brett? Yeah, I've, I've got something similar. I actually had the same margin at 42-14 to 14. again. 19 and a half point favorites. We've got it at 28. So, you know, pretty clearly, I think we both think we're going to do better than the Vegas line. But you mentioned Miami of Ohio. I think that's a great example of a game where offense came out a little flat in the first half and then we pulled away in the second half and won very comfortably, but didn't cover. Um, any of our listeners that are betting fans, I'd stay away from this game. I, I just think there's a lot of unpredictability in what can happen in this one feel very good. Irish will walk away with a W. I think it's going to be a blowout, but it, it just may, it might not be as big of a blowout as um, we're hoping for and expecting. And I think part of that is just if we're coming out flat, uh, com- coming back from a tough road game. All right. So moving on to our next uh, segment, the assessment of the state of the program. We're really excited about this one. We wanted to do it early in the year where we're going to take a holistic view of Brian Kelly over his 12-year tenure and where the Notre Dame program is today and and evaluate Kelly really on, on our own very grading scale, looking at three different categories, recruiting, winning the games you should win, and level of play in big games. Of course, these interrelate. If you recruit really well, then you're going to win more games and there's fewer games where you're not really in it. Uh, if you play better in bigger games, uh, you, then that's going to turn around and also help you recruit. So these are interrelated, but we're going to try to break them up into three different sections, grade Brian Kelly and the program on each of them, uh, and then step back and look at what that means for the program. Let's start with recruiting. At some point, we're going to cover recruiting in a ton of detail. It's just too important to the trajectory of a program, too important to the expectations. Um, now, Going into a little bit more on those expectations, I want to I want to set them for Notre Dame fans that if we ever have a top three recruiting class, let alone number one, we think that will mean that it was a total fluke. Weiss had the number two overall class once. Notre Dame as an institution, it's important to note, has significantly handcuffed the football program. What exactly do I mean by that? Well, academic standards restrict the players that ND can recruit quite significantly. There's no public acknowledgement of this. There's no hard line, but it exists. If you talk to players, coaches... Anyone in and around the program, they will fully acknowledge that point. Yeah, and Pete Sampson at The Athletic has done a really great job trying to cover this topic. It's it's a bit elusive, as you mentioned, to get you know kind of on-the-record information. He's conducted a lot of interviews with former coaches and also former members of the admissions department in Notre Dame. Most of those individuals spoke on the condition of anonymity. Um, a lot of times the coaches and administrators had already left the university one example of who he talked to is Dan Saracino, former assistant provost for enrollment. And and what Samson found in those interviews and in trying to dig around this topic is that the university will bend their standards for GPAs, ACT, and SAT test scores. 
So there is some flexibility, but one area where they won't uh, bend the rules is high school course requirements. So if you want to get into Notre Dame as a student coming out of high school, you need to take at least two language classes, and sign language doesn't count. You need to take Algebra two and Geometry. You need to take four science courses with at least one being physics and chemistry. And admissions will not bend those rules. And so the impact on that for recruiting, as Pete Sampson's conducted several of these interviews, he's estimated in the last several recruiting cycles, the Notre Dame, the institution, has only let Notre Dame, the football program, recruit about one-third of the top 100 recruits. So this is already a ridiculously competitive recruiting environment. Uh, It's already tough going up against Ohio State, Alabama, Clemson, Georgia. But when you can only go after a third of the best of the best, the five stars, the super high-end four stars, it's like trying to play football with four guys on the field when the other team gets 11. And obviously that doesn't always translate to the field. But from a recruiting perspective, the odds are really stacked against us. Now, as a counterpoint, Coach Kelly and Coach Freeman are aggressively pushing Andy to be more aggressive with top recruits that they want and convincing them that they are ND fits as opposed to only focusing on those recruits that were already clear ND fits. In conjunction with this mindset shift, they have begun recruiting players much earlier in the cycle. Um, One key element of that is it helps build stronger connections, but equally importantly, it also helps recruits get in front of the necessary academic requirements with much more time to adjust for course loads, improve GPAs, etc. These conditions that Brett had mentioned before. They can, if you know your sophomore year that you need to take four science classes, you can get ahead of that as opposed to having interest with ND around your junior or senior year. There's just not enough time to really adjust your schedule for that. Well, now these shifts, they open up the pool of recruits that ND can recruit, hopefully. I would imagine it doesn't improve that percentage of top 100 prospects. We can recruit to 100%. There will always be some recruits with very little interest in academics, but this could open up our available prospects meaningfully. These changes are at the forefront of a hypothesis being tested by the staff that ND can consistently move into the top five. Yeah, really great point. You know, before the Camping World Bowl at the end of the 2019 season, Brian Kelly was actually on the record saying that top five recruiting classes are now the goal and that he thinks it's possible. It's really interesting that it's now the goal, which means that before 2019, we had basically conceded top five recruiting classes weren't possible. Um, So obviously, this is going to evolve over time. We're trying to move our way up. We're trying to build in ways to meet the academic standards while, while reaching more of these top recruits. Um, but I think it's just really important to acknowledge that when we're doing this grading scale, when we're looking at criteria, we're not talking about top three classes, probably not even top five classes. We just think, especially looking backwards, beyond the limits of the program, looking forward might be reason for optimism. So criteria for recruiting. I think top 10, I think that's doable. I think that's a reasonable expectation. Now, will we be able to move into the top five? For the reasons I mentioned, maybe it's possible. It's still pretty early to say. But I do think overall the top 10 is something that we could consistently do and should be the goal. Um, there's really no excuse for any class outside the top 20. And to make it a little extra uh, extra challenging in our grading scale, I think you need to really take advantage of those on-field successes. So if you have a really good year, if you make it to the playoffs, you got to see an uptick in recruiting. Yeah, and so then how does Kelly stack up on this criteria? From 2011 to 2021, his recruiting classes have only cracked the top 10 twice. Uh, I think we need to do better than that. On the flip side, Kelly hasn't been outside of the top 20, so he's been very consistent. He's lived in that 10 to 15 range for class rankings. Um, But then if you also look, we said we want to see bumps after on-field success. After the 2012 BCS title run, we got all the way up to number five recruiting class. But after the 2018 playoff run, number 15. After last year, number 17. Now, this 2022 class is shaping up to be maybe one of the best under Kelly ever. And so as we talk about trying to get recruits earlier in the cycle, what that's also meant is last year when we made that playoff run, our current recruiting class was pretty much settled and we had already filled our scholarship spots and and roster spots in that recruiting class. So really now as we look for the on-field bump from this last playoff run, we might need a little bit more time because really where we're going to see that impact is in this 2022 class and 2023 but overall, I think in the first 12 years of Kelly's tenure, um, we've lived in that 10 to 15 zone. We've marginally done better when we've had on-field success, but we've also never slipped backwards. And so for me, that all stacks up as a, as a B-plus grade. Look, I think B-plus might be a little harsh. 
I definitely can't go all the way to A. This is Notre Dame. Expectations are very high, and, and they should be. But what we're seeing in these next two classes, which Brett just mentioned, currently ranked number one in 2022 and number five in 2023, uh, long ways to go, but that's way ahead of where we have been historically. I think hopefully we could be seeing the signs of some of these mindset shifts that we mentioned before. So maybe we're opening up the pool, we're getting on these guys earlier, and it's starting to get us to the point where we can recruit at this higher level. I'm not going to bet on it. I think, again, like I said, I think top 10 is around where we should expect it. But if we are actually going to be getting to that top five class range, these are the signs that you want to see. Um, so I think kind of uh, one other point I'm just going to say, just the difficulty, if you just factor in the difficulty of recruiting to ND given the academic standards and how that factors into my grade, I think that's going to help push me, push, I'm going to push it up to an A minus over a B plus. Yeah, so we're, we're right in that B plus, A minus range on recruiting. Going to our next set of criteria, winning the games you should win. And I want to be very, very clear on how we're grading Kelly. Solid C minus in his first few seasons. Losses to Tulsa, Navy, South Florida, Northwestern, which, by the way, that Northwestern program in 2014 wasn't like it is today. That was a 5-7 and seven squad that didn't make a bowl game. Duke, Navy again in 2016. So in those first few campaigns, we lost a lot of games to unranked teams. But since 2016, we've been undefeated. Giant knock on wood. Uh, as we mentioned in the intro, we're recording this segment before the Florida State game, so we don't know how that game went. Uh, but for context on win streaks against unranked teams, Alabama's current win streak is at 95. That's the greatest of all time, 95 straight wins against unranked teams. The next closest to 95 was the Miami squads of the 80s, and the Florida squads in the late 90s both had 72-game win streaks against unranked teams. Notre Dame, though, Alabama's at 95. Notre Dame is at 31 straight games, uh, won against unranked teams. That's second best in the country. Again, don't know how we did against Florida State. But for 31 straight games leading into this season, extremely consistent in winning the games you should win. Remarkable level of consistency, frankly, unheard of generally really speaks to the health of the program, just being able to consistently perform at such a high level. You can't do that unless you have buy-in from everyone in the program, a strong culture. Hammering that point home a little bit more, we're one of only six teams to finish in the top 15 for FEI in the last four seasons. I think we're only one of four teams to win 10 straight in four straight seasons. Now, COVID knocked out a few, of course, but still, I think the list was seven teams or so to win 10 games in three straight seasons from 2017 to 2019. Additionally, ND has established a fortress at home, winning 24 straight home games since the loss to Georgia in 2017. That streak's good for second to Clemson among active FBS teams. It's also ND's longest home win streak since a stretch of 28 wins from all the way back in 1942 to 1950. So, from a consistency perspective, Kelly is clearly winning. Yeah, I think maybe the only slight area of criticism as we talk about winning the games you should win is just not dominating some of these teams more. Last year, we beat Louisville. 12 to 7. That was a really just not that great of a Louisville squad. Uh, the year before, we beat Virginia Tech 21 20 and needed a late Ian Book touchdown drive to, to save us in that one. But still, set, setting that aside, overall level of consistency, game in, game out, season in, season out. I think clearly A plus work by Kelly and the staff since 2016. So we'll, on, on this grade, we'll maybe bifurcate Kelly 1.0 pre 2016, Kelly 2.0 post 2016. Um, and that might be a hot take with ND Nation. I just don't know how you grade out anything else other than an A plus when when you are looking at some of these win streaks that are stacking up against Nick Saban and Dabo Sweeney. Um, just a really great job by Kelly in, in the last five seasons. Definitely. So moving on to our third and final grade, play in the big games. This is a hot topic. Always a big attention point for for Notre Dame fans. Um, so we, we intentionally framed it this way. How do you play? Not necessarily wins and losses. The expectation isn't necessarily to beat Bama in 2020 or Clemson in 2018 when you're two or three score underdogs, especially given the recruiting limitations we just discussed. Sure, I wish we were more competitive in games against Bama and Clemson, and maybe there's a fourth grade somewhere in here of don't get blown out, but games where you shouldn't win, how do you fare? Um, and I, I think this is the area where Irish fans are most critical of Kelly. Frankly, Critical of the entire post-Lou Holtz era, which now encompasses 28 of the 30 seasons where I've been on this planet. So here's the games against ranked teams starting with the 2012 season. 
Yeah, there's 42 games where we've played a ranked opponent under Brian Kelly. The Irish are 20 in 2022 in those games. And even if you just look at the last four or five seasons, we're 9-8. and eight. So no matter how you slice it, Kelly 1.0, Kelly 2.0, or just all of Brian Kelly, we're about 500 in those big games. And so we've gone through and we've graded every single one of them. And, and I'll bucket them in a few. We, we obviously won't go through all 42 games. But there's losses when you're a multi-score underdog um, against Bama and Clemson and Ohio State. And the range of grading we gave on those was D to B+. Plus. If, if we got blown out, say, the 2012 BCS title game, that's a D. If you were really competitive for long stretches of the game, say, uh, at Athens in the Georgia game, uh, where we lost by one score, B+. Plus. If we were competitive for part of the game and then the wheels fell off, picture the 2018 playoff game against Clemson. That was a C-, minus. just still not acceptable to you know be getting the doors blown off in the second half and just not really be competitive at all in the fourth quarter. Um, C-. minus. Uh, the second category was losses to rivals. Um, and certainly if it's a multi-score loss to a rival, say Michigan in 2019, I'll even put Miami in 2017 in that bucket, just automatic D or F. And then close losses in uh, in games against top-tier programs. So the Clemson Hurricane game, the Florida State-Jameis Winston game, those we're all going to put in the B- minus all the way to A- minus range. Um, you know, can't go all the way to a lo- all the way to an A grade in a losing effort. But I think Notre Dame fans should be really happy when it, you know, frankly takes a horrible offensive pass interference call for Florida State to squeak one out against us. That was still a great display of football. Mm-hmm. And then on the flip side for wins, blowout wins, automatic A+. Underdog wins like Clemson and double OT, um, also going to be an A+. And then the close games where, you know, we beat the ranked team, say Georgia Tech or Temple in 2015, but it was way closer than it should have been. Uh, losses would go all the way, or sorry, wins would go all the way down to about a B minus grade was was the lowest grade we would give uh, for a winning effort. So using this grading skill and then averaging up all the games from 2010 to 2016, our, our grading skill for Kelly averaged a B minus, excluding 2012 that dropped to C plus. Not great, not surprising when you think about a lot of the, the frustrating games Brett had mentioned that were in that time period. Since 2016, though, since really the revamp of the program we've improved and the departure of brian van gorder (laughs) yeah very most perhaps most importantly the departure of brian van gorder uh we've improved to a b since 2016 still not great still can't get blown out in big games we got to get better at keeping it competitive but i don't think the narrative from irish fans or or the national media really fits there's been a lot of dominating wins in big games and there's been a lot of close competitive losses clemson florida state both georgia games some of the stanford games over the years, if you're not a very talented, uh, very talented competitive team, you're just not gonna you're just not gonna be in those games at all. So I think I think we do need to I do I do think rightfully we should get some credit for keeping those games very competitive. Yeah, and as we think about grading out Notre Dame as a B in big games, I think a lot of our listeners and a lot of fellow Notre Dame football fans won't agree with that. And, and I'd like to just kind of set at least my own perspective on, on that narrative about whether or not we should be able to play with Bama and Clemson and Ohio State. And, and certainly some of those were ugly losses where it just looks like Notre Dame doesn't belong. But the tough reality is we don't belong in some of those games. Like that last year, Alabama squad, no one in the country belonged with them. And it frankly yeah. goes back to the recruiting advantage, right? So I think from my perspective, what you're seeing in those big games where we lose by two, three scores you're really seeing recruiting play out. You're not seeing coaching. You're not seeing player development. You're seeing a recruiting gap. And we talked about why that gap exists and what we might be doing to close that gap. But in the absence of that, you just got to know that in some of these games, we're going to be outmatched. And when you're outmatched, it means you're going to have some lopsided scores. But I still think, you know, looking across a sample size of 42 games against ranked teams, Notre Dame hangs in there. We're 500 against ranked teams. And we've been really competitive. We've been really close. It feels like a lot of times we're knocking on the door, even if the playoff games get all the attention or the blowout losses get all the attention. If you look at a broader sample size, I I feel really good about grading this as a B. I I think that's the right place, even just from a qualitative perspective. I agree with Brett. I think that recruiting point that he made is critical to the outcome of these games. It's just very difficult beating teams that have such a, a blue chip talent uh, advantage. 
Um, as we mentioned before, hopefully we're starting to get into a higher tier with recruiting. Um, these academic standards that we have that are so difficult, we may be finding a way to get ahead of them a little bit. Remains to be seen. In addition to that, we've made the playoffs a bit more recently. Can we capitalize on that and turn that into bigger classes? Hopefully. One other note I'll make is that the one time that we did actually capitalize on a, a great run to the BCS title uh, game in 2012, we did have the number five class, as we mentioned. However, all momentum after that pretty much went away due to getting destroyed by Alabama in the championship game, uh, the Manti Teo scandal, catfishing scandal, which everyone remembers very vividly, and then, of course, Kelly flirting with the NFL. So, basically, all the goodwill that we had built up from that season went away shortly after. This feels a little bit different. Seems like we have a little bit more momentum here. So, let's uh, keep our eyes peeled to see if we can if we can do that. Yeah, I mean, just to build off that, if you said... How positively do you feel about the trajectory of the Notre Dame program in the last 25 years? I think this is about as good as we've ever had this program, um, really since Lou Holtz. And so to recap our grading, we're B plus or A minus on recruiting with trending in the right direction. Consistency, A plus. Big games, B, maybe even B minus. And I think Everyone here, both on this podcast, national pundits, Irish Nation, realizes that's the big glaring area. I think probably a lot of Notre Dame fans might say C or D. We're a little more analytical about it and just see the numbers telling us B, B minus, but we get it. And so all that grades out to an average of a B plus. Um, no, we're not going to grade on a curve like a lot of uh, Notre Dame business students get in their inflated Mendoza finance major. Uh, this is the real world. And B plus is solid. The program, we think, is in a really solid state. We've used the word consistent and healthy a lot. There's definitely areas for improvement. We've mentioned recruiting. We've mentioned being more competitive in big games. But just as Notre Dame football fans, the last four or five seasons have been really fun, a lot of a lot of big wins, a lot of great seasons. And we feel really good about where Brian Kelly, Coach Freeman, Coach Tommy Reese have the, have the program set up going forward. For our closing topic, we wanted to pick a segment that rightfully honors the ND home game experience, as we have our home opener this upcoming Saturday. This game will be the first standard home game since the pandemic, a moment hopefully signifying an eventual return to normalcy. Anyone who's ever been to a home game at Notre Dame knows it's a special experience, but there is something particularly unique about that first home game weekend each year. Certain buzz in the air, if you will. Exciting opponent or not. With that lead-in, our closing segment of the week is going to be the four horsemen of Notre Dame home game weekend traditions and experience. So we'll be picking our four favorite components of what makes up a great Notre Dame football weekend in South Bend, what stands out the most to us. Criteria is open-ended as always. Could be what's most memorable, most interesting, most bizarre, mix of all the above. But the things that have made you know home football games a really special part of Mike and I's friendship and, frankly, our entire lives um, and, and really Notre Dame community as a whole. So some of this is personal to us. Some of this is the broader Notre Dame experience. Um, but with that, Mike, you want to kick us off in the first spot? Yeah, diving into our picks for the Four Horsemen, I think any any fan who's been to a Notre Dame home game, you really got to start with, with tailgating. It's the big lead-in to the games. You're meeting with friends. You're meeting with family. You're having great food. You're having great drinks. For our group of friends, shotgunning is always a component of it. Jello shots are a component of it. Bratwurst, burgers, um, just just a great great reunion in many ways. Some memorable tailgates that we've had over the years. We mentioned in the last podcast, Michigan 2018. That was a lot of fun. That was a night game. I was actually exhausted during that game. Uh, my fiance Kristen would, would be rolling her eyes if she heard me say this, but I was so anxious about the game that I think I got like an hour of sleep the night before. So totally exhausted, and I was just basically chugging coffee during that tailgate. Uh, but the energy and the anticipation for the game kept me going, too. Uh, another great one was our first ND night game of students, USC 2011. That one was awesome. The game was not great, but the tailgating was fantastic. Uh, another one that uh, I would say the game certainly was not great, but the tailgating was awesome, was the BCS Championship in 2012. That whole week leading up to it, honestly, was kind of just an extended tailgate. The game sucked, but that was like a, that was a really fun week leading up to that. And then another one I would mention is the Miami uh, at Soldier Field in 2012. Just a very unique tailgating environment. We had like the parking lots around Soldier Field, 
bunch of Notre Dame students went in there. You really got the whole environment of uh, Chicago in there. Yeah, and what I really like about tailgating is it's always like riding a bike. Uh, you, you just you know how to do it every time you show up, and, and you got your go-to spots. couple shout-outs, the Thompson tailgate, uh, Paul Stevenson's tailgate, the Bedford tailgate at Pole 4. You just know every time you're in South Bend, every time you're back with your group of friends, you've, you've got those places to go and those families and, and friends to hang out with. And, and really, I think, just solidifies the game experience. I mean, the number of friends and family that I have that just show up to tailgate, they don't even go to the game. Like tailgating is, you know, for yeah. them and frankly, a lot of weekends for us, the, the best parts of the weekend and, and what you're looking forward to uh, the most. So turning to our second favorite Notre Dame tradition, it's the dorm traditions associated with uh, Notre Dame football weekends. Mike, you want to start us off talking about your experience in Morrissey? So Morrissey, uh, so that's the dorm that I was in as an undergrad. Uh, loved living there. Many would say it was perhaps the most diabolical dorm on campus. Really old. Hadn't been renovated since the 20s. You go down in the basement, there are just pipes everywhere. If you're not paying attention, or if you had a little bit too much to drink and you're walking down there, you might find yourself hitting your head and, and having a concussion. Uh, it has been renovated Put since then. Put them in the protocol. Looks... <laughs> yeah, exactly. It has been renovated since then, and it looks really nice now. So, unfortunately, it wasn't like that when I was there. But really small dorms. I had a cockroach problem, too. But it really doesn't take away from the traditions and the camaraderie that, that we had there. Um, one of these great traditions that we had was the game day wake-up call in Morrissey. So all the freshmen were sound asleep. First week, first football weekend of the year. Uh, they get a loud knock on the door. Uh, people are banging on, on pots and pans, just trying to get everyone up. And uh, yeah, they, they basically force you out of your bed. A guy dressed as Manor Man, that was our mascot. Uh, and then a bunch of people from Hall Council for, essentially like force you out side, whatever you're wearing. For some people, it was pajamas. For some people, it was boxers. Honestly, some people were probably nude, and they had to throw on boxers real quick. Some guys were actually in pajamas, and then they, just to join the rest of the crew, they would go down to boxers. Then the crew, including Manor Man, our mascot, runs around campus. I actually am good friends with, uh, with the Manor Man who was, who was there when I was a student, and I asked him if there was any any like uh, rationale for where he ran? He said no. He said he would just like run wherever he felt like running. So sometimes that was down South Quad, sometimes that was to the fountains, sometimes it was in a bunch of dirt, um, really wherever he felt. So at the end of this, you're dirty, you're often wet, um, but it was just like a really great way to build the energy for this, uh, you know, for for this like home weekend. Um, and I will say like one other aside on Manor Man, I'm, I could talk about him all day, but. If you want to envision what this guy looks like, he's essentially the Hamburglar, but without any corporate branding. Um, so a lot of tights. He has, like, a little mask on. People are usually, like, pretty confused, to, like, what he is. They're like, what the heck is Manor Man? But he's basically just a dude in black tights wearing a mask, and he runs around. Now, my friend, let's just, for the purposes of this story, let's just call him Eric. He, uh, I was talking to him. He actually thought it was critical that Manor Man stuff his pants uh, whenever he was in any sort of public outing. He thought it was critical to building the legend of Manor Man. You need a reputation and for the dorm. Exactly, exactly. So he did this, and then uh, this guy really never got in any trouble otherwise, but he was actually fined by the dorm uh, for stuffing his pants. Had a little back and forth. I think he, I think it was kind of like a Michael Jordan situation where he was willing to wear uh, the shoes that were banned by the league and taking the fine. So he was willing to take the fine for stuffing his pants. That's how, that's how strongly he felt about it. That's... That that's hilarious. So I actually lived across South Quad from Morrissey in the wonderful Fisher Hall. Um, also, probably not the shiniest dorm on campus. Felt felt like you're living in a cinder block prison cell for for most of your time on campus. But we had a, a very similar first weekend tradition. Um, but it was actually before the pep rally, so it wasn't on game day. We called it the Viking dinner, where before the first pep rally, um, at the first home game of the year, uh, Friday before the game, we would run into the dorm or sorry, run into the dining hall, and we would eat a meal. Uh, without cups and without utensils uh, definitely made a mess of the dining hall <laughs> we went back the next week and, and apologized to everyone and usually took a volunteer shift to, to clean up the dining hall and, and, and pay our dues but very similar uh, really cool how just you know every single dorm has their own unique traditions around campus a lot of them tied to football games um, and I think it's just part of what makes Notre Dame special for our next one a um, little less geared towards students a little more geared towards I think alumni it's that first approach when you drive into South Bend, um, oftentimes coming down I-90 from Chicago for a home game. My first couple of years after school lived in Chicago. 
I always remember Friday afternoons driving down with my buddy Jim or sometimes taking the train into town, and you'd be coming in I-90. We'd always be blasting the same song. Like, as soon as we could see the dome, we'd start blasting the boys are back in town. <laughs> uh, and you'd, you'd take that all the way into Main Circle. So, you know, a lot of sh- Chicago Irish uh, fans out there, a lot of Irish fans that fly into Chicago for the game rather than South Bend. And I, I think that that drive coming into campus, you know it's the weekend. You know it's Notre Dame football's coming back. Um, just seeing campus come into view, always a really, really special memory for me on, on game weekends. Okay, and so for our final item on the Four Horsemen for this week, uh, it's a bit of a catch-all, but a critical component of any Notre Dame game weekend. It's the official university event. So these are the pep rallies, the trumpets in the dome, the player walk, the bagpipe, drummer circle the night before. These are the events that if you're watching a broadcast of Notre Dame or if you're hearing a pundit or someone in the media talking about the pageantry and traditions of Notre Dame, these are the ones that immediately come to mind. Um, I think as a student, for me, I, I really appreciated these. I thought they were they were great. Um, I will say once you've done them a few times, you don't really feel quite as much of a need to do them every single time. Um, but even now, someone who's been to, I, I can't even count how many Notre Dame games I've been to, I still do appreciate uh, seeing them again from time to time. And I think that these are bucket list items that any big college football fan, especially a big Notre Dame fan, should, should try to do. Yeah, it's it's really an awesome part of the pageantry of college football. Um, you know, seeing the bagpipes, you know, seeing the trumpets in the dome, they're, they're just really cool items. I'd agree, though, if, if you tell me, do you want to go see the player walk uh, into the stadium or do you want to keep tailgating? <laughs> I'm going to tailgate 10 times out of 10. Yeah. Uh, but it's it's interesting how different fans shape their experience differently. So I think it's really important to touch on these events, you know, just as one personal example. You mentioned Drummer Circle. Freshman year, our friends, uh, every single Friday night, Drummer Circle, is where the drummers in the band pl- play a concert outside the main building on campus, outside the dome. And we would all dress up in bird costumes and get really into it and probably go way over the top. And we just kind of made it our thing. And that was a really cool part of our football experience, a part of our friendship, um, taking that pageantry of, of college football and and bringing it into our, our social life and, and our friendship. So, you know, really cool part of the game day experience. And I think definitely deserves a spot here on, on the four horsemen is just all those official university events. Definitely. So with that, we're heading into uh, week two, go Irish beat rockets, and we'll be back next week. Go Irish.